Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. This week, I'm really delighted to get to have as a guest on the show, Michael McAfee. And we are broadcasting live from the Oklahoma City headquarters of the Museum of the Bible. Yes. Uh, which this is actually my first time down here to the Museum of the Bible headquarters, but I will say... I'm familiar with the Hobby Lobby headquarters because I used to come down here and sell Subway sandwiches when I was a sandwich artist. What? Uh, when I was 16. So I did not know this. <laughs> yeah, when I was uh, 16, I was a sophomore in high school, and my parents were like, you need to get a job. So what better job to get than be a sandwich artist at your local Subway? So the Subway I worked at had some kind of contract. We'd come down to the manufacturing side, and you would sit on a cooler and sell your sandwiches for the first lunch. Then you would wait for 30 minutes, and then you would sell them for your second lunch, and then you'd put the cooler back in the car and head back to uh, home base. So I was down here quite a bit the summer of, what would that be, like 2006 or something like that, selling sandwiches. But this is a little different. Being in the, in the Museum of the Bible. Yeah, so, so luxurious. Right? It is. It's great. <laughs> I love being here. So uh, first of all, I just wanted you to tell us a little bit about you, what you're doing at the Museum of the Bible. We also know each other from going to Southern. So yes. talk about your PhD a little bit. Give us a little intro. Sure, yeah. So um, so I, I joke that when I was seven, I had my whole life planned out, right? So when I was seven years old, um, I, uh, I prayed to receive Christ at six and then was baptized at seven. Uh, when I was seven, my wife ended up, uh, she wasn't my wife at the time, she was just a girl, <laughs> that her family started coming to our church, and so I met my wife when we were seven, and then when I was seven, um, we had career day in Miss George's first grade class, so mm. dress up like the career you're going to have when you're an adult. Right. Every other little boy in that class wore a Michael Jordan jersey or a Troy Aikman jersey or yes, some kind of jersey that's what I would have been declaring they were going to be a professional athlete uh-huh. and I was the nerd carrying my bible and wearing a suit jacket <laughs> no saying way. I was going to be a preacher yeah wow. and so um, so that that was the plan ever since I was seven and so that was um, a huge year for you that, seven was big <laughs> yeah. I was like you know I've, I've thought about this enough and I've decided this is how my life's going to unfold so mm-hmm. um, yeah so I I uh, grew up always wanting to really be in ministry and so um so that's that's what happened I, I i for a long season right you know at the end of high school college out of college was in local church ministry and then five years ago a little over five years ago came to museum of the bible initially just traveling and speaking to churches conferences mm-hmm. uh christian colleges and universities and then um uh, continue to just expand that to really oversee outreach and engagement at mm-hmm. MOTB. And so, uh, so that's what we do here. It's a lot of fun. Museum of the Bible is uh, has been uh, open now for almost one year. Mm-hmm. And it's based in Washington, D.C. So our corporate offices are here in OKC, uh, where we do the back office work uh, because there's very little office space in the building in Washington. And that's because we maximized the floor space for people to... Well, in the location, it's yeah. not like there's probably a lot of office space around the location. Exactly. I mean, it's right in the middle of the action exactly. in D.C. It is. Yeah, it's three blocks from the U.S. Capitol. So it's if we were there right now and we wanted to go to the Capitol, it'd be a 10-minute walk max. You know? It's amazing. It's just right there. And so, uh, yeah, so it's great. And clearly, if you're going to house over 40,000 biblical artifacts, uh, it's a lot cheaper to get that real estate here on the outskirts of OKC than it is. It in, uh, is? In, really in, out in here? The heart yeah. of Washington, D.C. Yeah, hard to believe, but yeah. but it's true. And so so we have our, our artifacts, the 
bulk of the Museum of the Bible collection here, as well as uh, a lot of our, our office staff. So mm-hmm. anyway, so yeah, so I've been working there. Uh, love it. Uh, the mission of Museum of the Bible is to invite all people to engage with the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so primarily we do that through the museum, but we also have traveling exhibits. Uh, we have research that's conducted on our items by scholars around the world and our curriculum that's available that's written for the high school level um, and is in use around the country and really around the world. Israel actually has over 100,000 students that use our Bible curriculum uh, in Israel. So That's pretty amazing. It is, right? That really Israel's cool. using the Bible curriculum produced in uh, Oklahoma City. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that is pretty amazing. So what's your role now with the museum? Yeah, so uh, I still do a lot of traveling and speaking, uh, but find opportunities to partner with faith-based groups and um, find out ways that we can support them as they encourage their people to read the Bible and then as well invite them to come spend some time at the museum. We have mm-hmm. uh, The facilities are incredible. I mentioned there's, there's a lot of floor space, a lot of meeting space, um, so we get to do some unique things. We were just talking about Dr. Peter Williams. He'll be in D.C. in December. He's coming out with a new book called Can We Trust the Gospels? Mm-hmm. And so um, working earlier this morning, setting up what's his lecture going to look like. Yeah. And, um, we're working on a podcast of our own. So just different, different ways to encourage people to get the Bible back into the center of conversation. The book yeah. is amazing. And so regardless of your religious beliefs, I mean, the, right. this this book has transformed the world. And so we want people to, to know about it, engage with it. And, uh, and so we talk about the Bible's history, how we got the book, its impact, how it's changed the world, and the narrative, what, what the story is. Mm-hmm. So. so I want to just pause for a second and talk to you about kind of the experiences you've had in the last five years working for the Museum of the Bible. Yeah. You've gotten to travel around, see a lot of churches, a lot of organizations. I know you guys have a ton of partners, um, but even just going to a church, speaking, interacting with the people there, I think most people have a sense that Christianity in America is changing mm-hmm. in the last generation, but especially in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, from your vantage point, traveling around talking about the Bible, which has been at the center of a lot of the conflict, mm-hmm. what have you learned about the American church and its relationship with the Bible in the last few years? Man, that's a great question. I I think that there is... Um, Man, there's so many ways to, to go with that. I think one of them, start with millennial and Gen Z, the younger generations. There are more, according to the latest Barner research, there is a higher percentage of biblically hostile members of our generation mm-hmm. uh, than really the previous generations combined mm-hmm. um, that are still living and, and maybe in, in U.S. history. And so, and, and biblically hostile, they define not as... Um, the Bible is not just uh, not just that they don't believe the Bible is the Word of God or, or anything like that or um, reliable, but they actually think the Bible is a tool to manipulate and control people. Yeah. And so um, you have on the one side this uh, extreme view that the Bible is the problem, and on the other side, uh, the interesting thing is you have a really solid percentage that really matches uh, the hostile view that is a Bible-engaged group of young, um, mostly self-professing Christians who engage the Word, know the Word, love the Word at an even higher rate than past generations. And Mm. so it's really interesting to see that in a culture that often does challenge uh, biblical views and values, 
that those that are engaging with the Bible have been kind of forced to be refined by the fire of engaging with on a higher level. And so that's one of the things that is kind of fun is to point out to both groups that the other exists, right? That, right. Um, that it's easy to kind of live in an echo chamber and think either everyone shares your views and I can't understand why no one else would, whether pro-Bible or anti-Bible. Mm-hmm. And I, my challenge often to our generation is that I don't care if you were taught the Bible by Dr. Billy Graham or Dr. Richard Dawkins. Have, right. have you read it for yourself? You know, yeah. like, Are you engaging with it or are you just kind of taking... Uh, in what others are telling you is true about the book. Mm-hmm. And so that's one area. I think the other is uh, there's just a clear, it's just clear that I, I don't think that in a, in a world, in a society that is, um, that is skeptical and even moving towards being hostile towards the Bible uh, in some regards, that a church that doesn't teach the Bible regularly um, is is built to last because of the challenges that are coming. Yeah. The challenges that are coming from culture. And so it's so important that we read the scriptures well, that we know the scriptures well, so that then as we are engaging with the culture that we can have, um, you know, the be transformed by the renewing of our mind in order to see uh, world events through that kind of lens of the Bible. And so uh, that's what gets me really excited is the idea of how the Bible has impacted our world in the past, yes, and how today it should impact our world. Because regardless yeah. of what the, how you feel the direction of culture and society is going, um, we can say with confidence, given that the Bible has been very relevant for the last 2,000 years, mm-hmm. uh, that 2,000 years into the future, it will be relevant for every generation again. And so, right, right. Um, it's just how is it going to impact our world in our lifetime. Yeah, and the impact of the Bible in society today, to go back to your first point, I think whether you're Bible informed or whether you're you're pro Bible or or anti Bible, I think the problem a lot of times is big portions of people in either one of those camps are biblically informed. And mm-hmm. so I remember when I first when I first came across Bart Ehrman's work, I was reading his book. I think it was misquoting Jesus, yeah. uh, but he probably tells this story in several of his books. And he, yeah. you know he's teaching. New Testament at North Carolina and to open the class he says how many of you guys think that the Bible is God's word? Tons of hands go up. How many of you guys think the Bible is true? How many of you think that God gave us the Bible uh, to know about salvation or that kind of thing? Hands go up everywhere. And then he says how many of you guys have actually read the Bible cover to cover? All the hands go down. Right. Very few. And I saw a stat from, I think it was from Crossway, but it might have been from Barna. Last year, and I was talking to our college students about this when I was working at Crossings, like 2% of Christians had read the Bible all the way through in the last calendar year. Hmm. And when you think about those things, it's like if you're convinced that God wrote a book and it's true and it's about the most important things in life, why don't we read it? Right. And I think one of the, one of the problems that's only getting bigger is biblical illiteracy. And we look at the American church, that that's the problem. Yeah, it, absolutely. And and that's part of that has to be that we have access to the information that we need in our cell phones anytime we want. Because that's the, yeah. the great irony is that we have access through Google to resources that scholars of previous generations would have dreamed of. Mm-hmm. And the average person has access to that all the time, every day at their fingertips. And so even just basic things like 
the Ten Commandments or the names of the Bible are completely lost because you don't have to commit them to memory because you can just Google the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's so. exactly right. Like, and it, the problem with biblical illiteracy isn't necessarily that people can't name the twelve disciples. I mean, right, you right. grew up in church. I grew up in church in first grade or second grade Sunday school. <laughs> you know, you got a reward for memorizing the the disciples or the Ten Commandments or singing the song with the books of the Bible. Like, that's good, you know, and that's an indicator of biblical engagement. But right. part of the deeper trouble is people don't actually think what they say they believe. Mm-hmm. So we say we believe things like all human beings have dignity as the, as the image of God. But do we act like that? Right. Uh, when, we, when we say that the Bible is God's word, do we preach like that? Do we rely on the words of God or do we rely on the words of men? You know? right. So helping the church to engage with the Bible isn't just that we know the contents of the Bible. It's the transforming effect that the Bible actually has on us when we get to read it, when we get to preach it, when we get to study it. Absolutely. Well, and and you've got, uh, according to, I believe it's the same Barna study, something like 75 or 80% of Americans claim to be Christian. Mm -hmm. I think it was actually higher. But whenever you, depending on the study, that's fairly typical. I think lowest I've seen is 65, highest is 85. So take 75, take the middle. Half of those don't believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. Hmm. So even though they're, they're self-proclaiming to be Christ, a Christian, if you don't believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, then immediately like you have so misunderstood um, the, the doctrine of salvation that you believe in a Jesus that isn't going to save you, that doesn't exist. And right. so furthermore, then you take that a step further. What that means is if it's 75%, then at least minimum 37.5% of people um, are in America claim to be Christian, but don't believe that aren't Christians. That percentage is greater than the 25% that would be self-professed not believing. Yeah. And so there's actually an even larger pool to fish from, if you will, or a larger mission field for mm-hmm. the Christian to help clarify what Christianity is and who Jesus is to people who claim to be Christian than even to reach people that don't claim to be saved. Right. I think the nuns is what you hear about. Yeah. You know, the people have no, they, they don't proclaim having any religion at all. Obviously a huge group in Europe, a growing group in the United States. And it's easy to focus on them. And, and like you said, it's important that we go out and reach them. But the biggest mission field in America right now are people that are sitting in churches 1.2 times a month or whatever the new norm is who think that they're Christians, mm-hmm. but they have no idea. I mean, I looked at the State of Theology report that just came out, uh, and that was really eye-opening because um, like 90% of people think that God is triune, but the majority of, of evangelicals, like 56% or something, believe that Jesus was God's first creation. So it's like, how do you square Trinity with created being? And it's like, well, people are confused. Yeah. And they don't really know. It's, it's a lot of Christian truth is being absorbed through osmosis rather than through biblical study, biblical preaching, engagement with the Word of God. And one of the things I know that you're passionate about and the Museum of the Bible is passionate about is how do we solve that problem? How do we solve the problem of biblical literacy? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is looking at how the Bible has played a role and an impact in society. Yeah. And so if you think about it, is it a good thing or a bad thing that most people know some things about the Bible? 
there's there's language that's kind of carried over into our culture. I mean, people say phrases from the Bible every day, mm-hmm. and yet they really know nothing about the Bible. Mm-hmm. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it's a bad thing. I mean, obviously, like you're, you're setting me up here. Of course, I. That's part of the. So there, there's two voices that I even I'm talking with in this interview. One is my pastoral voice of a Bible-believing Christian who's on staff at a church, and and then let me step now into my uh, just Museum of the Bible voice, which the museum itself is non-sectarian. We don't take faith positions. Mm-hmm. But even, that's what I would say, is even as a historical museum that doesn't take faith positions on a book, um, I think I can rightly argue for the importance of someone to know and deal with this book because it's changed the world unlike any other mm-hmm. book idea or person in history the only person that's exceeded it is the person that the book writes about right, right. Yeah. Um, and so the in the year 2000 time life magazine uh, released a millennium edition counting down the 100 uh, most important events in uh, a thousand years in the year 1000 the year 2000 and so on that list, you can think about all the things that were on there of, of Columbus sailing and discovering America. Um, you had World War II and especially Hitler's rise to power. You had the Declaration of Independence, germ theory, Industrial Revolution, man on the moon. Number one above all of those things mm-hmm. was Gutenberg printing the Bible. Hmm. And it wasn't, the, it wasn't the Gutenberg press, although that did transform the world, but it was specifically yeah. the printing of the Bible. Um, that uh, once it was made widely available, it ultimately led to, in many ways, literacy. Um, people were desperate to be able to read so that they could read the Bible. Um, you had uh, hospitals that came out uh, in large part because people who were passionate about the Bible began to care for the sick. Um, that's why the hospital in you know, every city in America, basically, is some kind of Christian or Jewish um, uh background named after some kind of Christian or Jewish tradition. And so um, even if you're a person that doesn't believe in God, the Bible has to be reckoned with as Mm -hmm. a piece of history that has uh, ultimately reshaped history like nothing else has. Mm -hmm. And so to be ignorant of this book is to be ignorant about things like um, you know, I mean, you, you see from election cycles to, you know, idioms, biblical language that's used to um, all the way to watching sports. You know, you right. get David, and, you know, March Madness in March. There'll be a David and Goliath matchup. You know, right. someone will say it. The 16 versus the one seed. And so to to not be aware of this book, uh, you're missing out on so much of the shorthand of the English language because uh-huh. it was shaped by the Bible especially the King James Bible. Yeah, it's fascinating how the King James and even the Tyndall translation mm-hmm. have worked their way into just common speech. Yeah. And so many phrases that we just take for granted, like David and Goliath. You know, yeah. it's, it's an obvious biblical reference, but yeah. when we talk about judging, you know, judge not, or you know, only God can judge me mm-hmm. or something, I mean, we're, we're talking about quotes from people that have a background in the Bible. And I know you know, you know, you've researched this and stuff, but what are the things that are still kind of there as cultural cornerstones from the Bible? Oh my God, there's so much. I mean, there's just so much. Again, Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, um, in one of the opening chapters, makes the case that, uh, although obviously he would have a different view of the Bible than I would personally, uh, <laughs> would a say little bit different, well, yeah. a little different, we differ on a few things, says that he believes the Bible should be a part of the uh, common children's educational system. Um, we should teach the Bible in schools based on its literary merit alone. Hmm. The fact that uh, so much of the language that we use today comes from the scriptures 
Um, and so that's one place we agree. I would agree with Richard Dawkins. I think it would be great to teach the Bible, again, just as literature, because mm-hmm. um, if, like I remember uh, in, two, in the 2016 election, Ted Cruz uh, talked about how the body of Christ must rise up, you know, in order to whatever, support him or whatever uh-huh. it was. And, and, uh, and on the news, they're like, uh, it sounds like Ted Cruz is hoping that Christ will rise again. Uh-huh. And, you know, like, it's like, well, first off, the, the Bible claims he already did that. And second of all, like, that's not the body of Christ is shorthand for, you know. Right. Um, but same thing. If you... Um, if you watch the news or whatever, people talk about someone acting as a good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't know the good Samaritan story, you don't know what he's talking about. Um, yeah. You know, uh, don't let don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Yeah, flying the ointment. I mean, there's just there's so many writing on the wall, right? I'm, oh yeah. You watch James Bond, and there's that writing on the wall song a couple James Bonds ago. That's anyway, right. Yeah. That's the Bible. That if you don't know that story then you're lost on the reference of the writings on the wall. And so um, we can go on and on. I mean, literally, it's it's hundreds. I mean, and there's just, it's um, inexhaustible how many uh, phrases come from biblical inspiration. And so in the same way that, this is a sore spot for OKC fans, but you're the real MVP. Like, you mm-hmm. can trace that back and say, okay, <laughs> clearly this came from this source of Kevin Durant's MVP speech. And so now it may take a bunch of different forms and you use it and people say you're the real MVP. That's a statement that makes sense on its own, but you're hearkening back to a moment Mm -hmm. that was important and impactful. Well, today we're using a lot of those same moments for the Bible and we're drawing upon uh, moments in the biblical narrative that were significant, but it's it's separated from the power of understanding the context of that statement. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think a, a lot of people, you know, would argue when it comes to the Bible, if you're not going to use the Bible correctly, then don't you, we don't even want you using the Bible at all. You know, as if there's like a Bible shortage or something. But one of the things I've really thought about, you and I had a conversation a couple months ago about the impact of the Bible on culture. And one of the things I kind of took away from that conversation is, you know, we don't have to worry about the brand of the Bible. I mean, obviously, we've got people that don't like the Bible, but but we're not out there trying to, um, you know, give the Bible a makeover so it'll be more palatable to our society. What we're we're really trying to do is is give a voice to the Bible, an opportunity for people to engage the Bible, because we believe that the power isn't in the presentation of the Bible. Mm-hmm. The the power is in the actual pages of the Bible itself. Right. And one of the things I love about the Museum of the Bible is, like you said, it's not a denominational or strictly theological interpretation of the Bible. It's really for access to the Bible, impact of the Bible, Mm -hmm. thinking about the Bible generally. And I think in order for that to work, you have to be really committed to the fact that the Holy Spirit really will work through the encounters that you have with the Bible itself. Right. And in that sense, it's a different Bible. It's a different book than any other book in the world. It really is. And I mean, it, it's, it stands apart even from, uh, the majority of other religious, um, books or texts in that it was written over a span of thousands of years by 40 different authors by, you know, on three different continents with all different backgrounds. You had Kings and priests and, 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 uh, fishermen and, you know, all, all different prophets, all different types of people that are contributing to this text that then come together um, to form this book. The story of the Bible is incredible. I mean, that's that's a whole other topic. But uh, for 
people who love this book, for Christians and Jewish people and, and others that just read it, the story of how we got the Bible, it didn't just fall to us from the sky. Jesus didn't sit down and write the Bible. You know, it's like it has this amazing backstory of the history of how it came to be. And uh, and it does. Like, as you engage with it, um, that's my hope personally for the museum is that um, I think that a person that is skeptical towards religion can come to the Museum of the Bible and at least walk away inspired to say, I may not agree with the beliefs that people have about this book, but this book is amazing. And it mm. has done, it has been good for the world, even if I don't find uh, inspiration or comfort or whatever in its pages. And someone can come and read and go through the museum and have a very real spiritual experience and encounter with God uh, at the exact same way, which is how the Bible is, that mm-hmm. you can read it in such a way. It, even if you're a quote-unquote religious person, right? Again, that yeah. if you're a Pharisee, Pharisees had the Bible memorized, large sections, and they missed, they thought that in knowing the scriptures that it gave them eternal life, but they missed Jesus, as Jesus right. himself rebukes them in John 5. And so, um, but that others that uh, have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them can read those pages and and connect with an eternal God who still speaks today mm. through the pages of his word. So if you were going to, if you were going to just commend some either trends or work that's being done or even individuals as far as this is the best thing going on right now with the Bible and culture, the impact that's going on, what would you say? Oh, man. Uh, so we speak. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, obviously, that's that's easy. No, um, no I, I think it's important. Uh, I... There's a few things that I would I would encourage uh, people to go to. Number one, if they're if kind of on the literacy side that we talked about, if they were just saying, "Man, I just don't feel like I know the Bible well." We were talking earlier about the Bible Project. Mm-hmm. I think that's one place to go that is just exclusively looking at the biblical text, um, but is such a good foundation for just help me understand the Bible and understand because I feel like I'm I'm lost when I'm reading a lot of the text, and just honestly, I think it's great whenever. Whenever I'm entering into, like in my Bible reading plan right now, um, just daily plan, I'm in the uh, major prophets, right? And so it helps a ton to watch the Jeremiah video Mm -hmm. online and kind of be reoriented to what's happening in the book. And so um, so that's a place. I am a huge fan of the ERLC, and so I Mm -hmm. love the work that they do. So um, ERLC Ethics, Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, Russell Moore is the president, and uh, their blog is... Uh, exceptional, and all their writers are are great. And then um, uh, I I listen every a couple podcasts I listen to the Al Mohler's the briefing, and I listen to the Daily New York Times um, mm-hmm. are kind of my two podcasts driving into the office. And so yeah. um, the Daily is not from a Christian worldview, mm-hmm. uh, but I I want to intentionally make sure that I'm not only listening to or only consuming Christian content. And so. Yeah. Um, that's one of the, the things I do. So what would you say? You know, I think that uh, the resurgence in expository preaching has has been one of the best things that's happening among young preachers, whether you credit oh, yeah. that to places like Southern training, you know, expository preachers. I think, you know, I don't know if you've had him, but you know, just sitting in Herschel York's classes mm-hmm. at Southern makes you want to go preach the Bible. Yeah, and It makes you want to not... Do clever, you know, preaching stuff. It makes you want to 
preach the text and yeah. know the text. And so whether it's, you know, the, the formal training that's going on with people like that, whether it's the rise to prominence of preachers that are doing that, you know, mm-hmm. across the country, whether it's organizations like Acts 29 that, you know, are putting that out there as kind of something to model and hold up like nine marks, expository preaching is one of their marks of a healthy church. I think that movement is doing so much, You're so right. even on a small scale, yeah. you know, for the way that people understand and engage the Bible. The other thing I think, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I have just really marveled at the work that Crossway has been able to do in the last, I'm sure it's longer than I've you know been aware of it, but let's say in the last 10 to 20 years mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. engaging authors, you know, like Kevin DeYoung and people like that who are going to write books that make you want to read the Bible, yeah. uh, Piper, you know, the stuff that he's written with them. But then two, the things that they've been able to do with study Bibles. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I also have the opinion we probably have too many study Bibles, you know, like two, <laughs> we, they're like, we could, we could probably write a really good post on like the identity politics of study Bibles. Cause you got like the busy dad of three who also hunts, who, you know, also <laughs> does this and who does that and is left-handed. Like we, I mean, we have Bibles for everybody, but I will say, whether it's the MacArthur Study Bible, whether it's the ESV Study Bible, the aids that are available right now to get into the Word, I think, are uh, phenomenal. Yeah. And the way that you can access them online. I mean, and of course, Zondervan, I think, has done good work there, too, but really as a standout. I just think the publishing industry as a whole that the Crossway has inspired mm. has been really good for the Bible. And then, obviously, yeah. I think the Museum of the Bible. I mean, just any conversation about the Bible, the heritage of the Bible, the Bible as literature, mm-hmm. I think is is a plus, is a road forward for the culture. So those would be a few of the things I've mentioned. So one of the things I always do on, on this podcast is I want to ask you about your favorite books. And yeah. kind of the way that we do that is I want you to give me five books that you would take with you on a vacation to a desert island. So... Mm-hmm. This is not, you're not marooned on the desert island. You're not stranded on the desert island. You are going there for a nice vacation. And there have already been some people there. So there's a Bible there. There's Greek and Hebrew Bibles there. There's the entire works of Calvin and Augustine. And (laughs) I think John Wesley's works are there now. They've just been shipped in. Oh, great. So we've got a good span of those. So give me your books that you would take. You can count, you can do series, you can do. A life works, but five books that you would take on this desert island. Okay, these are uh, these are so lame, but these are like these are the way I'm thinking about it, at least in part. Of, these are the five books I most regularly recommend, and because they're the books that I that had a profound imprint on my thinking, especially ministry and things right. like that. Right. So, um, so one would be. Uh, Piper's uh, Don't Waste Your Life. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as a young man, which would be ironic on a desert island, um, because <laughs> I feel like my wife, life is being wasted. Uh, two, Keller's Reason for God, uh, mm-hmm. which, again, kind of same thing. I read that at my last class, uh, my last semester in college, and felt like I was, philosophy was a large part of my mm-hmm. undergrad, felt like, why did yeah. I not? have this seriously going into college this, seriously this would have been so useful I didn't know any of this when and did so, you uh, when did you encounter Piper for the first time Piper um, that's a good question I don't remember I know I know I read that book in college um, mm-hmm. and that was probably that's pretty close to the first time I mean I may have 
maybe through passion or something. I don't know. Yeah. Did you have? You know, I ju- we haven't talked about it on this on the podcast at all, and I can't believe it. Now I'm sitting here thinking about it. Like Piper's been such a huge influence in my life, and uh, it's kind of amazing we haven't had somebody bring Desiring God or Don't Waste Your Life or you know yeah. something on the trip with him. And speaking of the biblical engagement, his new trilogy that came out, it's come out of the last, I mean, they were a year and a half apart or so, but um, now I'm going to, th- now I'm going to forget the names of them, but I'll link to them in the bios, but he's got three volumes now on preaching, on reading uh, the Bible supernaturally and spiritually. And then um, just the majesty of God's revelation itself yeah. through the Bible have been really impactful on me and I think are impactful on a lot of people in the way they Pecul- see the Peculiar glory, reading yeah. the Bible supernaturally, and expository exultation. Yes, I, I think that's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah, those three have been awesome. But yeah. when, I first in, when I first encountered Piper, I was a freshman in college mm. And a guy that was with a campus ministry gave me the book, Don't Waste Your Life. Hmm. And that was right around the time, too, I was getting really into the Reformed rap scene. So, like, the Rebel Days for Lecrae and Triple E and the 116 Click. I'm still there. I I am there. I I, I still (laughs) listen to that. And those old 116 Click CDs are just unreal. But I was encountering that all at about the same time. And I just remember... The first time you come into contact with Christian hedonism, mm-hmm. it's it's a watershed moment. Like, I don't know a single person that's really encountered it that it hasn't really changed the way that they thought about yeah. their faith, yeah. about theology, about God. You know, just the thought that God's glory and your joy actually are the same. Right. They come through the right. same avenue and seeing sanctification that way, like we become holy because it leads to our greatest joy, which is God's glory. You know, we worship God for his glory. And by doing that, it's our greatest joy. I mean, that was just a paradigm changer for me in yeah. the way that I read the Bible and the way that I put sin to death in my life. Right. You know, and Don't Waste Your Life is just such an amazing book. I kind of think it's like Desiring God Light. Yeah. You know, I mean, no. it's, it's an easier book to read than Desiring God. Desiring God is like a journey. It is. Book. But uh, that book really changed my life. Um, And it seems like the more people I talk to about it, the more it's had that effect than I even thought um, for other people. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that one because nobody's mentioned that one yet. It was so good. And I almost, uh, the other one that I often think about is God is the Gospel. Uh, Yes. God is the Gospel book was uh, was right there on the edge. And and those two, I mean, you could, I've got extra copies of both. I mean, you can go either way, but Mm -hmm. um, so transformative. So, yeah, I love it. So yeah, so that's the uh, Piper, the Keller, um, Reason for God, Mark Dever, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, mm-hmm. um, which I, I, his class, he taught a um, intercession course in uh, at Southern in January of 2012 that mm-hmm. changed my life, hmm. and I, I went into that course very much uh, thinking the health of a church is measured by the number of people that are attending by the, you know, it's kind of that business success model and seeing a vision of faithfulness, especially if you were talking about faithfulness and preaching. Exactly right. Those are way better resources, things to cling to. But anyway, well, and his the, stuff on church discipline, I feel like is so oh. out of fashion, but when you read their stuff on it, you're like, this, this is biblical. This, this <laughs> yeah. is the way the church needs to function yeah, is shocking. by shepherding its members yeah. and by helping people to be holy. I know it's just like, wow, you wouldn't think that somebody would have to tell you that. But when, when I encountered nine marks, that was kind of 
uh-huh. revolutionary for me. I was like, wait, church discipline's a thing? <laughs> you know, like, this is what, this is what churches I thought mean. that's what was wrong with churches. Right, they're yeah, to, they're you know, too mean to people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that'd be a third book. Um, a fourth book would be uh, Don Whitney, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian mm-hmm. Life. Um, again, just these my faith journey, that was huge. And then um, fifth, kind of same thing, uh, the, the, the book Radical for the time of life that I was in mm-hmm. was... Um, was really formative, and so there, there's a lot leaving out. But those have been those. Those are easy reads. I mean, part of the reason I say that those are easy reads that um, anyone listening, if you've not read one of those, you can pick that up and right. read it over a weekend or on a vacation or whatever. And uh, those are those were truly transformative. And I love those are the types of book. Uh, Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism is another one. Like when I go back mm-hmm. and reread books like that, it's obvious how much those have shaped my thinking my worldview, my vision of ministry, et cetera. And so, yeah, yeah I, I enjoy going back and reading those. So Yeah, and I, that's a good list. I guess I'll read those for the rest of my life on this desert island. I'm yes, on. you would have a good time on that desert island. Well, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to come on, man. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.